Hi, my name is Nicole J. Georges. I'm a queer, feminist, vegan cartoonist, teacher, and advice columnist staying in Los Angeles, California with my half-blind chihuahua, Panyo Georges. <coughs> this is our podcast, Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Sagittarian Matters, the personal gets political as I talk about parenting, comics, the book March, and more with cartoonist Nate Powell. Stay tuned. Hi, welcome, friends. This is not normally a journalistic podcast. However, Over the course of my trying to schedule with cartoonist Nate Powell, the horrifying new president of the United States started tweeting about Representative John Lewis, whom Nate Powell drew in the three-book series called March. That's about Congressman Lewis's time in the civil rights movement. So all of a sudden, our interview became a journalistic interview because it's actually timely. It's very timely. Um... Nate Powell is an incredible cartoonist and a very hard-working person. I first ran across his work in the 90s when I lived in Kansas City and he lived in Arkansas, and he has been consistently putting out graphic novels and books ever, ever since. He is the author of books like Swallow Me Whole, which is one of my favorite books of all time, Any Empire and the Silence of Our Friends, and the aforementioned March. Briefly, I want to tell you about March. Um, Representative John Lewis When he was a young man, he drew inspiration in his activist life from a comic book that was called Martin Luther King and the Montgomery Story. So he decided that he wanted to have a comic book made about his own triumphs and struggles in the civil rights movement. That's how all this got started. He said, I want to see young people in America feel the spirit of the 1960s and find a way to get in the way, to find a way to get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. I can think of no better way to commemorate our 50th episode or to post a podcast on the day of the weirdest inauguration of all time than to offer you this interview with cartoonist Nate Powell. I hope you enjoy. Also, thank you to producer Chris Sutton for 50 great episodes. Thank you to co-producer Ponyo Georges for doing your best. And thank you listeners for sticking with us. If you like our podcast, please tell a friend. Okay, bye. Nate Powell, welcome to Sagittarian Matters. Glad to be here, thanks. This could not come at a better t- or worse time, a better time. I can believe it. It's, it's, yeah, it, it's all things these days. Well, it's all things. I kind of, okay, so I just reread... March number two and read for the first time March number three. And I, I feel like um, in our times of supreme despair, we're talking um, kind of the week before the inauguration. Yes, in our times are. for despair, I feel like you could not be hooked up with a better like posse or collaborative like partner or group of people for either hope or historical context. For sure. It's uh, particularly the last four or five days have been, uh, you know, very enlightening and nerve wracking, but ultimately have 
kind of like lit a fire under me and it's been very reassuring much more reassuring than i was expecting the weekend would turn out to be how so like what's the week been like for you well i mean basically thing you know things kicked off <laughs> uh last friday with congressman lewis you know on the record calling uh baby carrot fingers illegitimate president etc and as soon as that had even before the tweet storm uh occurred uh a lot of this was in my dad my dad brain started going and i was like uh oh it's like i'm gonna get nazi trolls i'm gonna get death threats people are gonna find out like you know stuff about my kids and my family yeah i was like i gotta, I gotta go on lockdown yeah so uh basically I, I did a minimal level and basically decided i decided to interact as little as possible and just kind of let things go but two you know the two main takeaways were number one i was i was left very hopeful and reassured at the overwhelming level of broad public support for congressman lewis uh and really people even you know like former rnc chair michael Steele being like don't go there, man. Don't tweet that. <laughs> like, people like, now we got to draw a line somewhere. Like, um, but uh, number two, in terms of what I was just talking about going on lockdown, not a single threat, not a single troll. Not the one. Check. Every single Twitter follower I gained, which was like 200 or something. And as far as I can tell, I didn't get any secret Nazi bots or anything. I was like, okay well this is shockingly smooth um so maybe i was just tangential enough that i escaped some of the wrath i know that andrew and congressman lewis definitely had a lot of uh filtering and grappling and rolling with the punches they had to do but uh i, I was left you know surprisingly with a with a sense that uh that the public as a whole those who were aware of the weekend's events really uh kind of stuck up for reason and decency in a way that my my doomed paranoid paranoia riddled brain for the last two months was not really um i'm just not really in that space right now and so it was nice it's like okay keep doing the work you can breathe life can go on we're all gonna find a way to fight our way out of this so that's, that was nice that's awesome and then you just gave a bunch of your royalties to a bunch of organizations that yes. represent underserved populations or yeah uh, basically I, I i do have to wait until my royalty check comes in to, yeah. to do the math yeah um but yeah i mean while all this was happening you know i was i mean ultimately this is yeah this is something that you know i'm a part of telling john lewis's story and the story of the movement for the modern day era and hopefully for decades to come. But there was a part of me that while all this was happening and expanding and kind of snowballing, uh, it, it didn't totally sit well with me that mm -hmm. I knew that, you know, like my book became the best selling book in the country <laughs> as a result of all this you know, hate and vitriol, yeah. uh, and the public response to it. So, um, to me, the, the simplest thing to do and, and something that has been working since November 9th was to try to figure out whether it's putting in time or energy or, uh, you know, trying to do something every day. But in those days where nothing else comes to mind, like just being able to throw some donations at, at organizations that are, that are doing good work. So 
for this, I was like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to sit this out, but the, the, the best way to actually put some positive energy forth and keep it constructive is just to take some of these royalties and, and directly funnel it into people who are kind of antithetical, who are organizing in ways that are antithetical to this agenda, you know, which I largely resist. That's so awesome. Um, yeah, I really, I, so I taught this workshop or it was a group this weekend that was making art during fascism. Yeah, I saw that rules. My friend, well, it's totally not even mine. I was guest hosting. My friend Beth Pickens is an arts consultant and she is a licensed therapist. So she works with artists about like, you know, asking for money or like growing as an artist and not letting your own kind of class issues or whatever hold you back and whatever. And so her clients were like, after the election, they were all like, should I stop making art? Should I become a lawyer? Should I become a doctor? Like, should I, you know, join like the city council what should i do and she was like you don't have to stop making art because that's artists ways of processing the world so keep making art and even if it's not political she was like start with what you have like what do you have available like you don't maybe you're not the person that like goes to the march and like climbs up and replaces the flag with another flag like maybe you're maybe that's not your skill set or maybe you're not that kind of activist but maybe you have other resources or time or space or a skill so she was like start with where you're at for sure. And I think, I don't know if this is something that's more specific to being, you know, Americans of roughly our generation who are creative people or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, there's this, uh, I don't know, when you're trying to figure out where to go and what to do next with what you have, there's, a, I think, a natural tendency to question whether or not you yeah, you should or even can choose to, to be an artist or not be an artist. Yeah. Because um, the answer is obviously like and this is where like things are about to get real like sound really snooty for a minute but if you're an artist you're like if you're if you're an artist you can't help being an artist it's a thing that you've probably been doing since you were two or three yeah um and there's nothing wrong with that uh but also like you don't yeah you don't have to compartmentalize the things you do i think with a lot of my own sort of on my own end of trying to figure out what to do uh yeah creatively especially as a like a full-time artist like my job and it's you know a passion at the center of my life or whatever um i think back to the way that our modes of expression and i say our because we're coming from the same cultural place in the past the way that the way that my or our modes of expression changed going from like the first bush presidency it's like young teenage punks into like the Clinton presidency as like lyrics and topics and, and ways of expressing became less overtly political and more personal. Then, you know, there was a counter movement to kind of push things back to the forefront, integrate the personal, the political um, and watching this work in kind of a cyclical way, the older I get, you know, the more it's just young people trying to figure out, how to be grown-ups and at a certain point you can kind of let some of that anxiety and baggage go and realize that you're always going to make personal things and you're always going to make politically charged things sometimes they're the same sometimes they're different works but uh yeah there's not like a a binary way to subdivide these and somehow you know justify your existence or whatever um it's just not something to lose sleep over yeah it's just it's your way of processing the world and if you don't do it if you're an artist You'll get depressed, you know, or you won't, yeah, yeah. or like you'll lack motivation to do other things because you're not emotionally processing things in the way you need to process them. 
So For sure. we need you here in this world, artists, whoever you are. Yes, indeed. So, you know, we didn't even... I set out to interview you just because, I mean, of course, because I like these books, but I like your work in general. And we do come from such a similar place. Like, we're running parallel in different ways because you're from Little Rock, or you were living in Little Rock, Arkansas. Oh, yeah, I'm from Little Rock. You're from Little Rock, and I was living in Kansas City, Missouri, and then, like, Sufi Sufi Nun Squad or whatever bands would always, like, Temeoski or, like, bands would, like, mix and match and go back and forth. And we would drive to Little Rock for a show, no problem. Oh, yeah, you bet. You bet. Um, and yeah, like half of Sufi, uh, went to school in Kansas city. And so I lived there briefly for a time, but yeah, it was, even though they might be six and a half hours apart, it very much became for six or seven years, uh, these interchangeable cities in mid America. Oh yeah. And I mean, now of course, if there's a show in a different neighborhood, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to do that. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm like, what's that 25 minute drive? I don't think so. Yeah, I'm lucky right now that uh, the the major DIY show and event space is uh, it's like a mile from my house, and like Bloomington is a pretty small. I mean, it's a it's a large town. It's been ninety thousand people, and half of it's college related. But I live two miles from downtown, and it's like I I live completely out in the sticks. Oh, so wow. I'm lucky that my, the venue is like a mile from my house, but still. But it's like nine o'clock and I'm like, am I really going to leave my house and go a whole mile to go to this show? And it just becomes this whole effort. I do like, like a man. cost benefit analysis. You're like, how well do I, how much, how much do I really like this band? Oh yeah. I'm like, well, when I get home, will I, will I have lost maybe just two hours of sleep for the night? How's that going to pay off tomorrow? Yeah, it's a yeah. I do some graphs and Venn diagrams. Do you draw every day? Like, do you draw eight hours a day? What is your schedule like? It's a my schedule is completely uh, it completely revolves around my kids' schedules now. So now that March is done, um, my older kid who just turned five, she's in pre-K five days a week, and my younger one who's just about to be two. Mm-hmm. She's in daycare, um, and I started out like half the week, and now I actually bumped her up to five days a week. Um, and so it gives me really six hours a day, five days a week to get everything done. So that includes all my work, but also virtually all household duties that need to be done. And that kind of inches in more and more on my work. Um, when I was doing March, especially the third book of March, um, as the the demands of the story and the creative and editorial components became more and more complex and pressing, and as we started researching things more, it became a seven-day-a-week process, and I would really try to whittle it down. Um, but afterwards, like my, my wife, Rachel, and I kind of agreed that it's better to keep it's better to keep my younger kid in a small daycare five days a week and i just basically refuse to work all weekend i just go full-time dad and post-march compartmentalizing my time uh, is better for everyone and it allows me to get more work done in a smaller period of time but i'm yeah i'm pretty much only working like 20 to 25 hours a week right now because i'm still not on top of just the 
every ball that I dropped while I finished March, like every household ball, just like piles of refuse that need to be gotten rid of in the garage, like stuff like that still hasn't even been tackled. So uh, one of these days I'll get back up to like six hours of work a day, but I'm not there yet. What was that like? Like what, how many, how much could you actually do per day? Would you do like a page a day? Like what was the, pro- what was, what's the, phys- I mean, I'll ask you later about the collaborative process, but what's the sure. physical process like? I got, I got really fast. So, uh, yeah, previous, like before I became a dad, I was doing in 2010, I did 500 pages in a year and I was like, Whoa, (laughs) holy shit. I did 500 pages. Uh, and a lot of it was, or maybe it was 2011, whatever it was. I knew that the clock was ticking down and like freedom was about to be, you know, no longer a thing. So I was putting in 55 hours a week and that's when I did any empire and, silence of our friends and the ear of the beasts all in a pretty short span of time um then once i got my work schedule back up it, it was down to it was still like the the classic page a day five days a week 50 days a year so i was doing 250 250 pages a year yeah um and that's that's pens that's like thumbnailing penciling inking yes. gray wash everything Really, like, I only count the inking time because, like, I thumbnail at weird times and I do it really fast. I pencil really fast. I only do rough 20-minute pencils for a page, Mm -hmm. and I do most of my thinking with the ink. Um, For the second half of March, book three, um, we knew it had to be released by a certain date, and uh, there were some setbacks, and I, I moved into a new house, and some other things happened, so I had to... But I had to double my workload, so I was doing two pages a day every day, but with the same allotted time, mm-hmm. and I got it done. Wow. Uh, and then we'll go into more detail about this, but the third book of March, um, for a number of reasons, uh, I only had eight and a half months or nine months to draw the entire thing from zero to finished, from like no pencils, no thumbnails. Um, I did it, but it, it meant I was doing... 10 pages a week, uh, you know, roughly 40 pages a month. So I, yeah, I, I wound up getting that entire 250 page book done in eight months, I think, with, you know, some other things thrown in there. How, so that, I feel like the books get denser and denser as you go. Yes. Like, thank God it's not a 10, like a, a 10 book series because they just got more and more and more and more dense. And there was more and more stuff that you had to compress. And For sure. Th- like, it just, by the last one, and the art gets better and better and better. And it just, I mean, it started off great, but it just, I feel like, you know, everything got tighter by the end. And so I can only imagine that it was harder or involved a little bit more. Um, but, oh, yeah. And Definitely. It, and it, it, you, uh, we, we hit a point where there was nothing else we could shave down in terms of content. Um, I even tried to do like once we realized how just how how dense the 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 book was getting just at the script stage. Um, I I did a run where I was like, let's see anything we can cut out, and out of the whole book, there were only four pages we could drop. And I was like, well, who cares about four pages? Like, let's just keep that. Let's just as Congressman Lewis says, got to tell the whole story, let's make it plain. <laughs> it's interesting to me that my pace became doubled because there are only a couple of moments in which I can really tell that I incorporated 
basically some like tricks into my visual shorthand so that it looks like I'm using the same touch that I was using like at the beginning of book two, more or less. But I'm actually drawing way, way faster. What are the and what kind I'll, of tricks? Well Are you allowed I, to say? <laughs> well I don't I can't even identify specifically what the tricks are, but I remember while I was drawing, like there was just you know, like and I use I use uh like the, you know, Hunt 102 Crowquill nibs, which have gotten really crappy in the last, like, five years. So a third of them are, like, you'll put one in, and one out of every three is garbage. So, like, I'm just burning through nibs, like, one a day, basically. Um, But uh, in general, I think I just, I developed... I mean, maybe the real answer here is I actually got better at drawing just by having to do it all the time. Um, I feel like, I, I don't know, I guess it was just a, a sureness of line that I started being able to do the same kinds of, like, patterns and textural stuff. And uh, I was able to kind of, like, draw limbs and stuff without having to worry about it. I got better at drawing individual faces once I got their personal shorthand down. So I wasn't really like sweating over, I was no longer sweating about drawing Dr. King's face uh, or drawing Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, And that took up, you know, that took up considerably more time early on. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I guess a lot of those things gradually whittled down so that I, you know, my pace was doubled in an unexplainable way. Also, it just had to be done. So you were like, did you lose your mind? Um, What? Yes, well, yes, things actually got pretty rough. Uh, I uh, I definitely think I became less good of a dad. Uh, I, I can't I, even imagine. I was pretty grumpy all the time. Yeah. Um, and uh, March, I mean, the third book of March, like, between, you know, Andrew and our editor, Lee Walton, who is very, very much an equal player in terms of, like, the creation of the book itself, uh, as well as Congressman Lewis, like the, the, the interplay amongst all of us became a, literally a 24 hour a day work process for one of us. One of us was always up researching or referencing something or drawing or writing or rewriting. And, uh, it was weird. Cause you know, like Andrew and Congressman Lewis can't work on the book while they're at work all day together already for ethics reasons. Um, so I would work on things during the day. We would be working out some kind of stuff and researching stuff. Then at the end of the day, Andrew would start working on March while I was doing dad stuff. Then when my kids went to bed, I would start breaking down the next two pages of script and doing thumbnails and pencils and letters for the next day. Um, but then while I'm doing that, Andrew and Lee and I would start text messaging each other. And often that's when Lee uh, or Andrew would uncover some kind of amazing revelation in, in some sort of historical archives that would change the script in real time. So I would often, I would chime in and I'd need clarification about something. And then all of a sudden, you know, we'd be like, whoa, like stop the presses. I just found out this. And then, you know, we'd, we'd have a, a crash course where we rewrite a scene that I was drawing the next day. Um, it, it was all encompassing. And none of it would have been possible had my wife not 
completely restructured her professional life in order to make the third book happen. Oh, wow. Um, so she took herself off of full-time employment, um, and uh, she works for a mental health services um, um, you know, organization, uh, helping out a, a variety of folks from a variety of backgrounds in town. Uh, and her work is obviously very taxing as well, but she took herself off full-time work so that I could actually be able to barrel through the book. Um, but we also lost health insurance as a family. So I had to get health insurance for everybody through Obamacare, which is pretty expensive. But then as a self-employed artist, I had to make like 50% more money than I was spending on the health insurance in order to pay taxes on the income I was using on the insurance. Oh my God. So it became this sort of like spiraling, uh, you know, pit of work and expense. So once it was done, um, yeah, it, it took about two months to kind of come out of the cave and uh, kind of, I think all of us, it took about a month or two to get our humanity back and be ready to really like, hang out and be buddies again. Like yeah. we're still, we're traveling and talking and doing events and stuff. Um, but you know, we're like, okay, cool. Well, we, we, we just finished that book. Let's just, uh, take it easy. And then by San Diego comic con, we are like, Oh, I think I'm normal again. Okay. Um, so, uh, then my wife went back to working full time and I tried to, you know, we tried to restructure things so that this would never have to happen again. <laughs> as a family unit yeah well hope i mean you've kind of made some books for the ages so you could you're not going to because you're an artist but you could kind of just chill for like a it'd decade be, it'd be so nice <laughs> it'd be so nice to chill one of these days yeah i uh while all this was happening like there have been yeah like as a self-employed cartoonist there have been several moments in the last five or six years where you know projects that are lined up fall through but it's the project you're banking on to be able to let you do the other things yeah so getting through several of those little mini crises while i was finishing up march i got the chance to line up some collaborations with a bunch of creators who are buddies i like their work and everything but like i'm booked through so solid through like 2021 <laughs> that my my goal now is to be able to like burn through these projects so fast that I can just like chill when I'm 42 years old, 43, oh, right. or whatever it takes. <laughs> like I'm just looking forward to my 40s and just like behaving like a normal person with a normal workload. Oh my god, you're wearing sunglasses and jams. And... That's the dream. That's all I want. That's all I want. <laughs> I know for me, like doing really intense, sad pages. You know, with as a cartoonist, it's almost like a full body experience. And I think of it a little bit, or I describe it as like yes. Frodo putting on the ring, where it's like when everything around you is like, like in the movies, and no one else can see it, but like your head is in that dark cloud of whatever the thing is that you are drawing. So then yes. I know that some of my friends coined the term scary writer face or spooky writer face, which is like when you get out of writing and you're like, uh, and then like other people try to talk to you or interact with you in a normal way. And you're just, it's, I don't, it's like almost like you were just born or you just got released from a cellar or something. And you're just like kind of weird. Like how did you having children who aren't going to be like, Oh, Oh, this beating that you just drew. Interesting dad. Like having to interact with your children without being able to really explain or with your wife. Like how did you do that? Doing so many pages of violence to people oh, you care sure. about, you know, 
every day? It's a lot of it was, I mean, since like, first off, since I spend 23 hours a day in my house, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's where I work and it's where I live and parent and stuff. Um, if I was having a particularly intense reaction to some real life things that were happening to some real life people on the pages in the pages of March, um, there what I, you know, like I did develop a little bit thicker of a skin for things that were kind of in the middle ground, but every once in a while, and sometimes it wasn't even like, it wasn't necessarily brutality at times. Sometimes I would just get destroyed at these moments of humanity. Um, and so like whether it was the brutality or the humanity, there were sometimes there might've been like four pages on the whole trilogy where I had to call it a day, like at noon, I was like, nah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. I'll just see you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I have to completely stop and change gears to go into dad mode to like go pick up my kids and stuff, um, it kind of, you know, definitely like the 20 minutes that it would take when I was driving by myself and like getting some groceries real fast before picking them up and listening to music, um, that, that was helping a lot. Like, um, I don't, I don't know, like listening to the voice that says I'm supposed to just physically leave my house, leave the location of the work became very valuable. Um, so my older daughter, the five-year-old, she's, she's, she's been alive at exactly as long as I've been working on March. So she has literally grown up around these images around not just my drawings, but the reference material, and some of the videos and like John Lewis is the first person for whom she ever knew their first and last names. And the second person was Dr. King, but she thought his first name was doctor. (laughs) But, um, so by the time she was three, I was able to talk to her. That's been the fascinating part of working on March was watching a young person's worldview expand in real time. And, as it relates in the context of of the the subject matter for March and the themes, when it, when you're three and going into four, at first you're aware, you have an acute awareness of what is fair and what is unjust, and so I was able to talk to her just on a level of fairness and injustice. Uh, and then after that, like a kid, when you're four, you become aware of what a bully is. You experience a bully. You see them around you. Um, and you're also aware of difference, but just difference itself. So like a year ago, she started requesting March book one as her bedtime read. And I was like, really? Okay. <laughs> and so uh, every couple of months, she'll request it again. And we'll spend three or four days and like divide it up. And I'm able to get a little more concrete and specific each time. But you know, like you go from, you know, like people being treated unfairly, then people being untre- untreated fairly because they're different, you know, from the persecutors in some way. And then as the as my kids' worldviews expanded, then it moves into being treated unfairly because of the color of one's skin, uh, and then moving beyond that uh, into a little bit more concrete issues of, of like why and when, and, and when she gets more of a grasp of time, like talking about her grandparents and their experiences and my experiences, um, that helped a lot. So like 
being able to talk about the subject matter in some way has helped like defuse just like that the the emotional intensity of doing some of those parts and then i you know i'm able to speak about it much more bluntly you know with my wife because she's around it all the time as well and she obviously is a very compassionate and smart person and wants to burn this mother down (laughs) i love that i mean i love that like everyone's in on it it's a family affair you know yeah it's uh it's it was truly all-encompassing yeah a uh, question. Da, da, da. Let me let me knock off some of my questions here. Do you use use sure. a nib? You don't use a brush. Oh, I do use a brush. I, I use, use it. It's about fifty percent. I I use like the. I'm the kind of person who like sticks with the classics. Like if they work for me, like I yeah. still I enjoy plain Cheerios. Mm, I like an yeah. oatmeal cream pie. Yeah, I like. Like the Windsor Newton Series 7 Number 2 watercolor brush. Mm. And even though they don't work that well, I, I just can't break up with that Hunt 102 Croquil. Yeah. Uh, so I, it's about 50%. I'll do, my, I'll do my line, most of my line work minus any rendering with the nib. And then I'll go back in and do most of my blacks and heavier line work with the brush. Do it quickly. Then go back in and do kind of a minimal rendering with the nib again and then i'll run over it with a hair dryer to seal it oh. and then do my gray washes over that you're the first person who has ever brought a hair dryer into the mix when we've been oh, talking on the podcast yeah i didn't used to have to do that um the first book where i used those gray washes was the silence of our friends and i don't think i ever had to hair dry had to blow dry those pages but I think it might be the Speedball ink that I like using, and I like using it because it's so tarry. Like, there are some times where you draw with it, and it's actually three-dimensional. Um, Wait, what like kind of ink is it? It rises up off the page a bit. It's Speedball? Which, um, which and one? I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I'm oh, sorry. What's that? Oh, what kind of Speedball ink is it? It's just... Oh, it's it's just, uh, I think the, the official name is Super Black India Ink. Great. So I usually, I'll get the 16-ounce bottles, which rot by the time you get to the bottom. Um, like they smell? And, yeah, they, God, they're so funky. Yeah. <laughs> so I try to, I'll, I'll, I have like a two-ounce bottle, and I'll pour the big bottle into the little bottle and add a little bit of water, mm-hmm. and that'll dry up and start smelling. Um but it's like it's thick enough that it's a double-edged sword. So I'm using my gray washes, which are also with the same India ink. I just dilute three different gradients of gray mm-hmm. um, because they're like the, the the ink is like a speed bump. So the the lines that I make with my pen contain the gray wash, like contain the watercolor work oh. uh, by forming a barrier that keeps it from bleeding out. But at the same time, the ink is tarry enough. Oh, I just went through some changes there. Um, the ink is tarry enough that it only dries like ninety percent of the way. The tarrier it Whoa. gets. So, yeah, like I made there in book one. There are a couple of spots where, like in the first half of the book, where before I realized I had to start using the hair dryer, where you can see some serious bleed through. Oh. I was like, oh, oh man. So part of my process had to do with taping down each page as I finished it and drying it with a hair dryer, then paint, then watercoloring it, then drying it again with the hair dryer, etc. Awesome. 
This really makes me want to go take a look at your originals somewhere sometime. One of my friends bought an original SPX, and right now I'm like, you're oh, sitting on a gold mine. <laughs> I feel like she got it for such a deal, and she was so happy with it. She's a she's an organizer in D.C., and so she, it, it was the year, well, probably maybe this has happened more than once, but it was the year when uh, Congressman Lewis came to SPX, and there yes. were huge lines around, and... It was incredible seeing so many different, like like civilians, like people that aren't, you know, nerds. Oh yeah, coming to a comics conference. That that's a good show to kind of get broken off on too, in terms of like jumping into our weird world of like of indie comics. I feel like there's a really good crossover potential there. Yeah, there was a lot of crossover. And I, I mean, reading the books, I, I kind of am like, oh, my God, John Lewis is the bravest person living today. I mean, I think he's one of the bravest people in America. Oh, he, he's an amazing dude. It's, it's, it's all there is to it. You're listening to Sagittarian Matters with Nicole George. Do you have advice for young cartoonists? Uh, yeah, I, you do. Uh, <laughs> this is great. I'd say that uh, the the little nuggets of advice that seem to be the most useful, and maybe the well, one of them, which everybody says, but it's totally true, is that you know, continue just continuing to do the work while you're trying to move through this process of you know whether it's come up with like a solid book idea or pitch things to publishers or figure out what you're doing with your work. Um, and I don't know, this kind of shows my age in that, you know, like I've never, I've never read online comics largely because of my relationship to computers because I'm 38. Same. Uh, and so I'm out and out of touch with digital platforms as a mode of self publishing, though I understand it. Um, I'd say that it still applies that even before your ideas are fully crystallized or even while you're trying to, to pitch and approach people, what's more important than any of it is that you continue to do the work every day. Um, and if you get eight pages of something done, printing it up so that you have the physical object. But the most important thing to me uh, has been like, I, I mean, skill is important, but nothing is as important as discipline. And I just don't think that I would have been able to be a full-time cartoonist at all, much less even just like finish a graphic novel if it weren't for discipline. And I started drawing comics right before I turned 12. And I was lucky in that my best friend had already been drawing comics for a year or so. And he was like, hey, we should draw a comic together. And so it was kind of an easy end. I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. And it was about it was two years before we started being in bands and stuff. But in those junior hockey years, we developed a pretty disciplined mode of working together and working alone or working separately. Um, so we were still we we're doing our homework. We were hanging out and having fun or skateboarding. But we were still drawing probably like you know, five to ten pages of comics or five to ten illustrations a week or something. That is awesome. And so when I tell people that like the, you know, like the dystopian guns and boobs 
superhero comics that I started publishing in the early 90s, like I don't consider what I do to be that much different than what I did then. And it's very true because I think it, it largely has to do with establishing a pact with yourself that there is a time and space in your life that is permanently carved out for these things in your head and putting them on paper. Um, and like before I became a full-time cartoonist for, I don't know, the first eight years of the 21st century, I had completely given up any hope that I could actually be a full-time cartoonist. I didn't see how it was possible. Like I went to SVA and a lot of my friends who were in, you know, in my class, they stuck around New York and they would like intern at Marvel or Nickelodeon or DC or whatever. And a lot of these folks started, you know, doing and getting work and moving in that, moving in that direction. Um, I was still reserving this, the entire structure of my life around when Supernet Squad was touring or recording. And so I'd move every six months or so and you know i'd pack up and then we'd go on tour or make a record and then i'd move somewhere else and i would make a comic you know in between each of those transitions so i couldn't really conceive of doing a truly long form work or funneling everything into becoming full-time as a cartoonist and also i valued my career working with folks with disabilities but at a certain point i started going for more uh, awake overnight shifts at work so that I could draw while on the clock uh, at my job and when that wasn't working I would get up two hours earlier so that I could draw until noon and then work for 10 hours after that at my job I mean a lot of it is like I don't really know if people think that there is some kind of a payoff with comics but there really isn't much of a tangible payoff or like no one really necessarily deserves anything. So but that's, that should come as a, as a relief. Like it's a, a fundamentally low stakes industry and means of making art. So like, I, I think Michael DeForge actually wrote, had this in an interview or wrote it in, in a way that struck me very well. Um, I mean, it was like, yeah, more tips about comics, but I think he said basically like you can, you can do some really interesting and weird stuff because like if you succeed at something in, in a comic and you pull it off, nobody really cares. And if you fail miserably at something you try to do, still nobody really cares. Yeah. Uh, that's been very liberating for me. Um, do you think also your, really punk, your punk ethics go into that? What's that? Do you think also your punk ethics inform your kind of like... Oh, yes, yes. Like, not um, like non-competitive, kind of like, what's the best case scenario kind of outlook on it? Yes, that's true. And also, I think the other way around is true. I think my personal disposition as a beta dog, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I, I just, I'm like the kid who, in gym class, who, when it, and I like playing kickball, mind you. I've played many rounds of punk kickball, but even punk kickball, much less in junior high school, I was the kid in left field who was like chasing rabbits. Mm -hmm. So the desire to like, you know, come out on the top of the pile has never been like, has never been a priority in my life. Uh, but I think it has, it has kind of helped dispel any notions that I might have battled with in terms of what it means to quote, make it or, 
you know, following a certain path that is supposed to get you to a certain end point. Um, so there's been very little disappointment uh, in that context because I feel like I always kind of entered it with a very personal mission in terms of making comics. Like it, when I did Swallow Me Whole, it still surprised me and surprises me to this day that somebody agreed to publish that book. Oh my God, like I, I love that book. The whole thing without somebody being like, oh yeah, sure, sure, we'll do that. And I was like, really? And I still kind of like that. Um, so like, I don't know, the most liberating thing is knowing that even if nobody you know, gives you gives you money or offers the capital to print something that you've made to make it, you know, quote, real, if the work still has to be done, if it's something that's inside you, that's the only voice you need to listen to. I love that. That's, I mean, you know, one of my mission statements and probably because I came to comics through zines, like I liked comics mm -hmm. and then I tried to draw superhero comics and it wasn't working out for me because yes. my style is not really that. And I was like, these look so bad. This sucks. And so I just, I was like, I guess I can't do that. And I just stopped. And then I found zines. And then through zines, I refound comics because I found comics like King Cat or like Funkopotamus yes. or whatever um, from that. And I was like, oh, this is what comics can look like. But what? Oh, but one of my mission statements is, you know, helping people self-publish because I'm like, you don't need to wait for someone else to tell you you're an artist or a writer. You just are. And if you want people mm -hmm. to read your work, you can photocopy it and they can read it. And if something else happens, great, but you still just have to make the work because that's who you are. Yes. But so that's, but I wonder saying that, do you have another kind of mission statement underlying your work or anything that you go back to that you're like, this is why I'm on this planet. This is what I want to do. Um, I mean, I'd say I don't, I don't have like a, yeah, I don't have like a unifying principle i think behind the, the stories that i make or why i make them i certainly draw there's a common thread that i know that I, i'm attracted to um and i'm both as a as a creator and as a reader as a viewer um in everything that i listen to and watch and read i am drawn to very subjective intimate uh, experiences they don't have to be first person experiences, but as close to first person, even if they're second or third person. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from by the time I became an adult, I was able to look back at my family's life. My, my older brother has autism and some other disabilities. He functions on a high level, but I spent, you know, until I was in, 10 or so like I had no notion that my family and the way we lived life was any different than anybody else's in fact I wasn't even aware of what that would even entail like whether or not people's private lives are any different or similar to each other's there's no frame of reference at all um but the more my yeah the, the more my world expanded and I realized that we were in a very unique situation uh, by the time I was able to kind of put that experience to use as somebody who, you know, assisted and advocated for folks with disabilities, um, I was able to kind of first embrace the, you know, my family's path. And then finally I was able to kind of put a bit of that into the work I was making without feeling weird about it or feeling like, it was exploitative or feeling like there was baggage associated with it. And then 
some doors just kind of started opening. Um, so it's not like I have a mission to, you know, illuminate uh, people's stories or certain perspectives which haven't been brought to light. But, you know, I don't even feel comfortable saying, like, that's just something that especially interests me because it seems natural that that should interest most people who enjoy stories. <laughs> um, so, no, I, I don't feel like I, I have any explicit, you know, other dimensions to my personal mission statement. It's It does seem like your personal politics and the places where you've lived and the things you've experienced do come in. And it is kind of that, like, why should I be an artist? It's like, because your experience as a human being on this earth is different than my experience as a human being on this earth. So the things you have to say are different and valuable. But yeah. I appreciate the place that your narratives take up in our world of comics. Like, I love Swallow Me Whole. Oh, thanks. I love it so much. I... If I could beat all of my students over the head with it, I totally would. <laughs> well, of, of all my comics, it's still like the one that's my quote, my baby. Really? It's it's yeah, it's definitely still the most special thing that that I've, I've ever made. Um, and uh, yeah, it's 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 utterly unique in terms of where it came from in my brain and the the path that it took to become a you know like a physical object. Um, yeah, there, there just won't be another one of those. So it's a, you know, it remains very special to me. I love um, the kind of I, magical realism of it too. I, I wasn't aware that was a phrase until I was finishing up work on that. And so I was like, you know, like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Or whatever. Yes. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. And then I was like, oh, I see. So you mean like just kind of weird stories that play with the, you know, like the, that are playful in our, our definition of what we find as an acceptable real world experience. Okay. I can deal with that. I didn't um, even think so of that, that either. And there, there are some parts of calling Dr. Laura where I just kind of get deep in my head and then, you know, kind of trip out mm -hmm. here and there. And then people yes. go, Oh, the magical realism. And I was like, Oh, what? I, I had that same kind of moment of being like, Oh, cause it, with comics, it just makes sense. It does. And I, um, to wind this back to, to punk or the thing that we call punk um, in my, I don't know, you know, like the last six or eight years of becoming truly, truly post-punk, um, one of the ways of defining the thing we call punk was put best by an, inter an interview I read with Ian MacKay in which he chose to define it as a free space. Um, and, you know, made obvious allusions to, you know, the way, the way jazz worked as a scene, the way hip hop worked and works as a scene, etc. But that's kind of the only unifying principle I can find for punk anymore is a free space. And I think because comics are so low maintenance, they're so cheap to make, they're so accessible. And in that way, they are very punk they're inherently punk because it only requires like three things to make a comic one of those things being an idea um embracing the idea that a, that comics creation itself is a free space has been uh, really liberating for me it's kind of like the place where I, I put that part of my heart that used to belong in the free space expression you know through music and going in strangers basements etc yeah but now this is such like a, 
I mean, I'm I'm obsessed, of course, with like a Luddite, you know, kind of like a tactile, mm-hmm. physical object, something that I can keep and look at forever and be like, see that? Whereas like oh, yeah. shows, I mean, I have a magical feeling around a show. I love the community and I love the, you know, the feeling of having played shows or been at basement shows or whatever, but I can't just take that off my shelf necessarily. For sure. And feel it again like I can a comic, which is also why I, like you, as a senior citizen now, it, of of the 90s uh, web com- people are like you should make a web comic I'm like oh it just hurts my brain looking at the computer oh, yeah. that yeah. long why would I want to look at a computer let me know when you make a printed copy I'd love to buy one yeah yeah. how do I collect that do I just print out just <laughs> on a printer and staple them together that would be satisfying to is me. it high yeah. resolution I, I don't know if I could deal with the printed <laughs> cartridge um, we're kind of we're kind of wrapping up my last sure. thing that I didn't get to ask you was what's been... Oh, I had two. They're very quick. Sure. Yeah. Is there anything that's been the best or most surreal part of working with John Lewis? Oh, man. Um, there. I mean, we've we've had some some moments that I never would have predicted. Um, you know, like there are weird moments where, you know, I found myself like eating breakfast at Al Gore's house and like, uh, like you, do. you know, all of team March went and my wife, Rachel, went. we all like got in my car. We're like, well, I was trying to keep it cool. You know, I was like, well, here we go. Just, just taking directions to Al Gore's house. And, uh, we pull up in his house and like, so naturally, you know, like this is the, the former vice president and the, you know, statistically rightful president of the 2000 election. But, you know, so you'd expect that whatever, somebody would, you know, come meet you at your car or whatever. There would be some kind of, you know, hubbub or whatever nonsensical phrase would describe the pomp and circumstance of it. But we're like, I guess this is his house as we're like coming into his driveway. And then this like weird tall guy just starts bolting out of his front door at us. We're like, holy shit, it's Al Gore. <laughs> He's just like, hey, God. Hey. And, uh, yeah, wound up just, like, eating breakfast with the dude, and, uh, his butler tripped over a dog and dropped some dishes, and, you know, you're like, what is happening, man? Uh, and to me, like, one of the the most, I don't know, like, it's always really, I really enjoy the moments where, I mean, we're all buddies, but, you know, there are times where, like, the little self-doubting voice in me is, like, feels like the little kid, uh, even though I'm the second oldest of Team March, I still definitely feel like the 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 youngest and tiniest one or whatever. Um, and, you know, it feels like Congressman Lewis is, he's entertaining us. You know, like, he's like, oh, I'll hang out with these guys. We've made this thing together. But he, re- I mean, he not only is really, you know, we're actual friends, but he also loves the comics community. And so sometimes, you know, like we feel like he's being very gracious by coming out to San Diego Comic Con or SPX or whatever. But he's always like, he's like, no, this is is like, this is my jam. You know, he's like, it reminds me a lot of the way that happenings were in the 60s. Everybody here is so free just to be who they are. And like, thank you for like shedding the scales of cynicism from my eyes, from these years that I've had to like, hang out in these crowded comic spaces. Um, and so he's kind of like made it a, a much more genuine experience for me, just, you know, seeing it in a much more embracing way. And it, and certainly uh, he's allowed me to see it as a much more inclusive environment 
compared to like the punk subculture in retrospect oh uh, yeah not entirely in retrospect i'm still a part of it but it's definitely defined by its exclusivity um i've missed some of the wild stuff like i didn't get to go on a trip one time when john lewis and stan lee literally bumped into each other like walking around a corner and they're like oh and andrew and lee were like like ah oh, uh congressman congressman uh this is stanley mr lee it's an honor to meet you this is congressman lewis and we're we're pretty sure that neither of them knew who the other was at that time uh i do know that stanley then did some homework after that and got really into john lewis and started like started a kind of solidarity campaign in the last couple of years that was like sort of some of the iconography and stuff piggybacked off of SNCC and off of oh, wow. what Carson Lewis and people were doing. He, had, he released a pen set that was basically the logo of SNCC, but it was, you know, it may or may not have been copyright infringement, but it was coming from this very good place of solidarity and unity. I was like, holy shit, like Stanley is being impacted by us having dragged the civil rights legend <laughs> into our nerd realm. Um, so there, there's been some weird twists and turns. He's so sweet. I was just oh, yeah. watching a video where he was talking about forgive, like, you know, that man that was like, oh, Mr. Lewis, or Congressman Lewis, I, I was one of the people that beat you at this, you know, Greyhound station. Or and he was like, oh, I forgive you. There's no room for hate in my heart. I just... He's like, I'm free. In, in, in 1961, the same year that President Barack Obama was born, black people and white people couldn't be seated together on a Greyhound bus or a trailway bus, leaving Washington. And in May of 1961, my seatmate was a young white gentleman. The two of us left Washington, and we arrived at the Greyhound bus station in Rock Hill, South Carolina. A group from the Klan beat us left us lying no. in, a, in a pool of blood when we tried to enter this so-called white waiting room. Now this is May 1961. Many years later, to be exact, in February of 09, one member of the clan, one of the guys who beat us in his 70s, came to my office in Washington with his son in his 40s. And he said, Mr. Lewis, I'm one of the people that beat you, your seatmate. He said, will you forgive me? Um, I want to apologize. Hmm. And the son started crying. He started crying. And I said, I accept your apology. Uh, I forgive you. Uh, they hugged me, hugged them back, hmm. and I started crying. And that's the power of the way of, of peace, the way of love and nonviolence. As Dr. King said, hate is too heavy a burden to bear. I've, I've heard him tell that story like, 50 times and every single time I cry it's so real <laughs> I was gonna it's ask like, you do you just cry all the time <laughs> like oh I do I mean I, I do like every every time he tells it it's so you know like it hits you in the fundamental in a fundamental way that makes you understand the absurdity of all these structures of power around us it makes you kind of blast through everything and see the absurdity of inequality and oppression it almost it, it makes all of it fall away at this moment and i know that you know like it's a real story i know that it's an anecdote also i know that it serves a purpose but it's an undeniable moment and every time i'm like you can do this nate you can be strong you can sit here on the stage and listen to the story and they're like 
<laughs> every time it's, it's, it's just too wonderful like, it interrupts every panel they're like what's that do you guys hear sniffling and you're like <gasps> yeah <laughs> oh god oh one of the coolest things and craziest things that i got to experience was i've gotten to take a couple of secret little like quick tours of 30 rock the mm -hmm. building and the last time somebody was like, we have five minutes, come with me right now. And just somebody was like, this isn't on the tour. I want to show you some awesome shit. And took us to this weird closet that was like inside another closet inside the 30 Rock building. And inside this inner closet were these insane sculptures that a young bored Jim Henson made when he was just working at NBC. Um, like he was just looking for something to do. I think it was from like the early sixties or late fifties, but he took an entire set of pipes that went through the fifth floor of the building or whatever, and a set of wrenches and stuff. And he turned all of them into proto muppets and he painted all the pipes and made this magical kingdom inside this just like inner shithole. What? <laughs> and uh, they, they did have the deep, like once they, uncovered it they they put some glass over it mm -hmm. just to be like this is sacred but it's not a thing that people get to see and they're like take a look you have two minutes or whatever <laughs> um and i was like wow this truly is where it all begins i would start so crying that again might be the most special the most special have you had to meet the president no i haven't That's i haven't surprising to me I, I do know he has he's got the whole trilogy i mean he reads comics He's but thought about Lewis you. Is, he's hand-delivered each book to President Obama. And I'm always like, yeah, you know, I've, I've been holding out for that moment. So maybe post-administration, there might be a moment where I might get like a, uh, who can come play some basketball? You'll be like, <laughs> Mr. President, I've been practicing for this my whole life. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. It probably won't happen, but we'll see. These are good impressions of uh, the presidential cabinets of time. We, got, we had a gore impression. We have. Oh, right. Yes, know, yes. We're I, I, I think I have a problem with I just impersonate people by default. And I don't realize I'm doing it. It's got me into a little bit of trouble. While you're past. talking to them? Yeah, like sometimes I don't realize that. Yeah, it's the way my brain works and like my, my brother as somebody on the spectrum, like he would just like watch and listen to programs and we would you know repeat them and reenact them and stuff yep. i just kind of like grew up around impersonating people so uh yeah on occasion you know people are like oh you should check out this impersonation nate does of you that's happened to me too oh really people are like do it and i'm like oh. my friend well this was i didn't get in trouble but i have a friend from judsonia arkansas and she, uh -huh. when we became friends, she thought I was Southern for the first, I don't know, nine months of our friendship because I would just lapse into impersonating her while we were hanging out. Oh, so I'd be like, oh, damn. yeah. I'd be like, oh, that's right. She's not going to like that. I'll tell you right now, she's not going to like that. Like, I wasn't even, I don't even, that was, that was too much of an impression. But it, like, she just thought, because I just, especially if I ever get drunk around her, I can, because I grew up in Florida for a little bit and then Kansas. So I can mm -hmm. really just go there. It's in there sure. somewhere. You know, as a kid, I was like, don't say y'all. And now it's all over the place. I was the same way. I didn't start saying y'all until I became an adult and started living in the Midwest. And all of a sudden it was just 
like y'all became instantly ingrained in my brain as like a means of staying connected to being a southerner I find only because I'm a grouchy person that then when I mm-hmm. meet people that were born and raised in Portland, Oregon, and they use the word y'all to sound folksy, I uh-huh. feel annoyed. Like I'm like, that doesn't belong to you. That's yeah. Like, and then people are like edgy around me. They're like, I'm just going to say this thing because I want to say it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm not the yeah. cops. I'm just a grouch over here in my trash can. Like you can say whatever you want to say. The dialect police. It's, it happens to us. It happens sometimes. Well, people try to get a little folksy, like on Facebook. They're like, "Hey, y'all, come yes, to." The, I'm like, do. "I'm like, you were born in you were born and raised in Gresham, Oregon. Let it go." Anyway, uh, th- do you have a favorite protest song? You wrote. Oh, do I? you wrote and drew a lot of protest songs in the books? Um, I oh, the one that has uh, that has hit me the most is actually. And a lot, of, some of these songs, I actually like. I've become very familiar with the lyrics, but a few of them I've never actually heard the song. So I have like a, a totally different idea of the way it is in my head. Mm-hmm. But my favorite is actually, some say that freedom is a constant struggle, uh, which just repeats three times, and then you know. But in the end, we must be free or whatever. But yeah, some say freedom is a constant struggle is is the one that is most powerful in its simplicity my cat's eating a large piece of plastic right now so i'm i'm kicking at the cat you're kicking at the cat to, do you do you have a favorite for the sake of its health. do you have a favorite version of that song like a like a person or place where there's a recording of that i don't oh. i don't i'll try to dig one up for you oh, though thanks well i was as i was reading the book i was like oh i wish there was a soundtrack I wish there was like oh, yeah. like a playlist I could go with this because I know like some of these songs I've heard Pete Seeger's version, uh, but I would oh, love sure. to hear other people's version. Or like I, you know, I love Harry Belafonte's version of anything. After the election, oh, yeah. I was loving listening to Nina Simone, but I, you know, she doesn't really sing that kind of thing. But I loved like listening to Pete Seeger and having a crowd of people all oh, sing "We it. Shall Overcome." That is waterworks for me. Oh, also, I should mention that. In, yeah, like in the last year and a half, another top contender is uh, Bob Dylan's "With God on Our Side." Mm-hmm. That is a real epic, right there. Check that out. After the, I, I just went and saw Gloria Steinem, and mm-hmm. everybody. It was right after the election. It was in November, and people wow. were like, maybe it was in December. People were like. How, you know, what do you, you know, is the world going to end? Like, what do you think? This is so awful. And she said, you know, I've seen way worse. I was alive when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and when Malcolm X was assassinated and when JFK was assassinated. She said there were four murders that led up to Nixon being in office. I've seen way worse. So this sucks. But like, there's people around that were there for these things. And then listening to Nina Simone's song, um, The King of Love is Dead, is and just remembering... I can't even imagine how that felt to have all those things happen. And like even reading your book, I actually, the part where I started crying was seeing Malcolm X like before he got assassinated and just knowing that that happened. Yes. And, and, and what, like once you really put the timeline together, seeing that these are events that are happening days apart from each other. Yeah. That like people are doing their work and living their lives, not being aware that they have three days left. You know, they're putting in work. Yeah. And then uh, thinking about that, and then Martin Luther King Jr., and then thinking about how even in the 2000s, having the fear that Obama would be assassinated. Like, I remember oh, feeling course, so yeah. joyful in 2008, and then being like, <gasps> like uptight, because being like, is America going to let this happen? 
Oh, yeah. Well, that, that's another thing that, like, I can't escape thinking about. In the alternate timeline in which the Clinton presidency would have happened, you know, starting this Friday, like, my immediate thought, and I'm still convinced of this, is that uh, in terms of, like, the real shitty side of it, November, December, like, hate crimes spiking, all that would have debatably been worse. Like, it's like it's a shitty versus shitty comparison but like my the next thing i was thinking i was like fears of assassination were, would have spiked even higher in my brain like we've we've as a society spiraled so far into this polarized environment of reactionary retaliatory you know rhetoric and action um like i don't know like I don't know how to turn this ship around, uh, but it's it's very very important to listen to the voices of of the Gloria Steinem's of of our parents of the people who witnessed these extreme uh, you know overturnings and this extreme turmoil like this sort of saturated the environment that wasn't all about people insulting each other online. It, there were like in terms of in terms of visible public figures uh, being gunned down, uh, that is an, that that's a plank that we are not walking with as much, you know, as much of a light shined on it. Uh, and hopefully, we can stay. Hopefully, we can stay away from that. But I, I I'm struggling with remaining hopeful. Uh, I, I don't know. I feel like things are going to get worse before they get better. Okay. So let's hope that passes quickly. And let's hope we're all putting in the work to make it better. Yes. Nate Powell, thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, I'm glad to be on the podcast anytime. What is your sign? Do you believe in astrology? Uh, I don't, but I think it's cool. I'm, I'm like a stereotypical Leo, July 31st. Oh. So I share it with uh, Harry Potter. J.K. Rowling herself. They both have the same birthday. Oh. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just like pure Leo. I'm just like the, you know, whatever, uh, unquestionably over loyal, like loyal to a fault, kind of, uh, you know, somewhat selfishly motivated uh, person who seeks approval and desires to whatever. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm like the stereotype of a Leo. Well, you are a shining example of a Leo. Thank you for serving the world with your craft. Is there any last thing you want to say to any of my listeners? Oh, no, I'm doing fine. So, you know, hey, hey, listeners. Hey, want to say what's up? <laughs> hey, guys, like, check out my, check out my YouTube channel. It's like, it's going to have a lot of hits. Like, I've got some really cool tracks that are going up soon. Just thanks a lot, you guys, on the Kickstarter. That's pretty, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, and um, I'm going to knock on wood for a lot of things. But I'm so excited your books get to be taught in schools. And yeah, that, how wild is that? That is incredible. So and that Representative John Lewis's story gets read by more and more people now in this incredible time. Oh, it must. Like that, we, we didn't even touch on that at all with one sentence. I'll just say, like... For the best and worst reasons, like we never anticipated that our work on March would become more relevant as the series progressed instead of less relevant. 
Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Wait, can I, I want to tell you one more thing before I stop recording, which is one of my friends in Portland, uh, like up, like wears this like gross hoodie from the nineties that she just is still, still rocking it. And she was punk and it has that, that, uh, punk patch of somebody throwing a swastika in a garbage can. Oh, I'm aware. And I remember making fun of her, you know, a couple years ago being like, really, really, you gotta, you gotta really take a stand on that. You think that like. We aren't pretty clear about how how Nazis are. Like, I just was like, that's so ridiculous. Like, that's like the most obvious thing in the whole world. You can take that patch off now. Everything's okay. And now, now mm-hmm. look at us. Look, egg on my face. Who's laughing now? I'll have you know that not only have I had the exact same exchange <laughs> and the exact same kind of like, you know, personal shame, but also seeing that exchange with other people. Um, Maybe, yeah, like 14 years ago or so, there was a, there was a very similar exchange I had with somebody because I had a I had an inhumanity sticker on my car that had a burning Confederate flag and it said, "Hey redneck, your heritage is hate. Burn it." And then there was this fellow, you know, faux intellectual, play acting punk who was like, oh, that's actually, like, really classist because it's like, you know, but, like, it was undermining, like, and this was not a Southerner either, but it put me in a space where I felt like it was not valid to stick up for, like, a blanket rejection of, you know, like, Confederate flag-toting rednecks. And here we are. Look at here. Here we are. Aren't you glad you didn't scrape that sticker off your car? I did not scrape that sticker <laughs> off my car. My God. But then my car wound up burning up, not the, not oh, the flat. God. But at least the sticker burned up with it, I guess. I don't know. You know what? And I mean, it even it went so far as to have, you know, like a bunch of like super edgy artists trying to like reappropriate swastikas. And I was, that was like a little too much. But now here we are. It's, it's fine. It's fine for first wave punk. And we'll just, we'll just leave it there. Like, leave. Let that die in 1979. Yeah, maybe we don't need to re. Maybe some of the things we don't really need to take back. Let's just yeah. leave them. Leave we them. already did. Yeah, totally. leave them where they lay. Leave them there yeah. in that in that era. Anyway, all right. 